0: Nelson Mandela served 27 years in prison for his opposition to racism in South Africa. For 27 years, Mandela was denied not only his freedom, but also his dignity and a chance to see his family. 27 years. Here's what he had to say about the day of his release As I walked out the door toward the gate that would lead to my freedom, I knew that if I didn't leave my bitterness and hatred behind, I'd still be in prison. Many of us have never been locked up in a literal jail. But maybe we're in that other prison that Nelson Mandela was talking about. The prison of the soul, surrounded by cinder block walls, made of hatred, grudges, bitterness, and rage. Maybe we're angry at ourselves and bound by the chains of guilt, regret, and self hatred. <clears throat> Would you, wherever you're at, like to be as free as Nelson Mandela? What do you imagine a life of freedom for yourself? No longer rehashing old conflicts in your head, joy and mercy replacing regret and reprisals. Having the capacity to bless those who curse you or who have cursed you. Can you imagine the freedom of the soul that could be for you? Freedom for your family. Freedom for this church. Imagine yourself walking from wherever you are now, walking into the light of day without any prison bars, without the shackles, without the heaviness. That is what this fall sermon series is about. We're calling it. No Future Without Forgiveness, Giving and Receiving the Gift of Freedom. No Future Without Forgiveness. This is uh, a borrowed title from Archbishop Desmond Tutu's um, account of what happened in South Africa. Why are we doing this series? Well, first, as a church this fall, we are aligning with Jesus. That is our goal. That is our focus. I preached about it last week on Vision Sunday. A life aligned with Jesus is a forgiven life and a forgiving life. A church aligned with Jesus is a forgiven church and a forgiving church. That's the first reason. The second reason is that forgiveness traps are dangerous. Forgiveness traps are very dangerous. And if we fall into these traps, we will do great harm to ourselves and everyone around us with a generational impact a generational impact. We fall into one of these traps. Maybe you're in one of these traps because of a generational impact. Anyways, I want to mention two at the outset of this series that I want you to be aware of, and we'll refer to them throughout the series. The first trap is what we call the settle the score trap. We fall into this trap when we attempt to settle the score with the person or people we believe caused an initial offense against us that was unjustified we attempt to make them feel as much pain or more as we believe they made others feel or they made us feel. And the reason that we fall into the settle the score trap is we believe that forgiveness and justice are opposites, that you have to choose one or the other. And so we choose justice because we believe that's the righteous way. And we abandon forgiveness in the process. And that often ends in... Violence of some kind, verbal, physical, financial, legal, mob violence. It often ends in scapegoating people as uh, they're no longer a human being. They're all bad, carrying the guilt of everything that has gone wrong. And so we say to ourselves, if you're not angry, you're part of the problem. You're part of the status quo. If you're not throwing stones, you're a guilty person. What's the problem with this trap? We can just ask ourselves, does the score ever get settled? Does it ever get settled? The score is never settled if that's our goal. This is a dangerous trap to fall into. There's no future in it. That's one trap. The other trap we'll call the forgive and forget trap. The forgive and forget trap. We fall into this trap when we attempt to forget and even excuse what is inexcusable. And the reason that we fall into this trap is we believe that forgiveness is simple, easy, and always includes reconciliation with the offending person. And so we might even say, like, hey, I said I'm sorry. Why can't we just go back to how things used to be? So we pursue forgiveness but abandon justice in the process. And we might even use Bible verses as a spiritual bypass over the messy terrain of grieving and lamenting. This trap is especially dangerous for those who have been deeply hurt. Forgiveness is a long process. It's a slow process. Nothing glib about it. I like what Lewis Smead said. He says, A healed memory is not a deleted memory. Instead, forgiving what we cannot forget creates a new way to remember. We change the memory of our past into a hope for the future. So, There's the forgive and forget trap. There's the settle the score trap. And those traps will keep us imprisoned. But where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And so we're going to follow the Spirit of the Lord this morning and this series. Let's begin in Genesis 3. Because in Genesis 3, there's a story of forgiveness in four scenes where we get to see God's process of forgiveness. And I don't know what your forgiveness story is. But I wonder if any of these scenes will shed light on where you're at in your process. And my hope is that we can follow the Lord, his spirit and his word into being forgiven ourselves and also to extending forgiveness at a new level of freedom than we've ever been able to before. Scene one, betrayal. This first scene has three characters, the serpent, Eve, and Adam. The fourth character is the Lord God. And he doesn't have a speaking role, though he is involved. He's the one being betrayed in this scene by the creatures that he has trusted. Trusted with power. Trusted with choice. Trusted with speech. Trusted with space. And this begins with the serpent actually using his speech to twist God's speech. Verse 1. Now, the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Now, this question is dripping with venom. He's in a crafty way suggesting that God forbade Adam and Eve from all of the fruit in all of the trees in all of the garden. It twists God's loving prohibition against one of the fruit trees, which would have been harmful to Adam and Eve. And he makes it sound like God is a tyrant. Nobody gets any fruit from any of these trees. So this is no ordinary serpent. We can tell just from this question. Early Jewish and Christian interpreters of Genesis 3 understood what was going on here, that the deceiver, Satan, Is at work. In some way or another, he's fomenting a rebellion and a betrayal against God among his creatures. And he is going after the one thing that connects God and his creature that ever so slender, that ever so delicate, that ever so easy to destroy line of trust between God and his creatures. If you take away trust, You take away the relationship, and that is a betrayal. Eve takes the bait. Verse 2, the woman said to the serpent, we may not eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, or we may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. You see, serpent, we can't eat it or touch it. We can't even touch that thing. Now, is it a good idea to not touch the fruit? That's a good idea to not touch the fruit if you're not supposed to eat it. Did God ever say don't touch the fruit? He never said that. And so Eve's response is at at the very least a misunderstanding and a failure to remember and take heed of the actual words of God. So it gets worse. And that is that the serpent is going to malign God's motives. He's wringing out all of the trust from the relationship by suggesting um, that God's motives are bad. Verse four the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. The suggestion is God's withholding something from you, something good, something you need for your flourishing. He doesn't actually love you. He's not good. If you want good, you better do what he told you not to do. So Eve then, with her own choice, with her own body, with her own eyes and mouth and will, participates in the rebellion. Verse 6. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made for themselves loincloths. What are Adam and Eve doing here? They're ruining God's creation to get power, to make themselves wise, to satisfy their appetite for pleasure and for wisdom. God trusted them. He trusted them as his king and queen over all the world. The the birds, the fish, the trees, and each other. He trusted them with each other. And they already had so much power. They, They had so much trust. They had so much influence and so much good. They had so much good, but they wanted more. They wanted more good. They wanted more power. And so they ruined God's creation to take it for themselves. Their eyes were opened, but only to see what St. Augustine called the difference between the good they had lost and the evil into which they had fallen. If you want your eyes to open, you'll see it. He says, it takes the experience of the pains of sickness to open our eyes to the pleasantness of health. Isn't that so insightful from our friend St. Augustine? It takes the pains of sickness to open our eyes to the pleasantness of health. That's what it means for our eyes to be open in this world in a way that God has not opened our eyes. And the Lord God has left, the betrayed Lord God is left to pick up the pieces, to grieve. His twisted words, his maligned motives, his destroyed world. He sees what Adam and Eve have done to themselves. And this, my friends, is where forgiveness really starts. It starts right here in the wreckage of betrayal. Scene two, truth. Verse eight, and they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Now, is this not, is this not an iconic and familiar dynamic? Guilty people. Hiding in every way possible from accountability, especially from God. Yet God here does not hold them at arm's distance. He's not crossing his arms in contempt, but he comes running and searching for his beloved creatures. God is searching. People are hiding. Have you ever been in that spot? Have you ever seen this happen? God is seeking the truth. But he's doing so tenderly. He does not come in a spirit of accusation. He comes in a spirit of accountability. Verse 9. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. And God replied, who told you that you were naked? Verse 11. Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? Now, notice the Lord's gentle insistence to get to the bottom of the situation. He's asking questions because he wants the man to own up to the truth. And and there's gentle insistence from the Lord, but still Adam is blame shifting. That even as God presses in, the man is like only reluctantly saying what happened. Verse 12, the man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. So really, it's the woman's fault and it's the Lord's fault because he gave him the woman. Maybe if it was just me around here and I didn't have a help meet, I wouldn't have fallen like I fell. Now, here's the final question from the Lord, followed by a final evasion from the woman. Verse 13, then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this? that you have done. And the woman said, the serpent deceived me, and I ate. Why the accountability? Why the insistence on the truth? Because the Lord God knows in his love and in his wisdom that the truth needs to come out, all of it needs to come out, into the open. Because the Lord God knows that the way he designed us and designed the world is that the soul can't heal until the truth comes out. Babalwa Malawi was a little girl in South Africa when her father, Cicela, was killed. He, uh, her father was part of the uh, what's known as the Craddock Four. They were working in a legal, nonviolent way to end racism known as apartheid in South Africa. And as a result of this work, Sicilo uh, and three of his uh, fellow uh, activists were pulled over the side of the road, taken out of their car, beaten, brutally murdered. And Sicilo, for his part, his body was wounded in 43 places. Acid was poured over his face, and his right hand was actually chopped off. Here's the worst part his killers evaded accountability. Who did it? Where are they now? There was so much violence like this during the apartheid era, and there were so many lies to cover it all up. Now, imagine being Babawa. Imagine being in her shoes, her own father, her own daddy, brutalized and gone without any justice. Do you know what uh, Babawa Malawi told the investigators who were looking into her father's murder? She said this. We want to forgive, but we don't know whom to forgive. We want to forgive, but we don't know whom to forgive. Can you hear the cry of her heart for the truth? It's not a vengeful heart. It is a heart and a soul longing for integrity and wholeness and for healing. Um, This was also bad, not only for the survivors, but also for the perpetrators, because they were carrying the secret. One of the murderers was a South African police officer named Eric Taylor. The guilt of the murders weighed on him over the years. And he said this, he said, you can't live with this your whole life. I would like the families to one day forgive me. He needed to confess, but Bala needed him to confess. They both needed the truth to be told. Now, eventually, South Africa formed a team known as the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. And they made an offer to the country. If you committed atrocities during apartheid, you could apply for amnesty. But you had to tell the truth, the whole truth, and to go on record and confess publicly with the survivors in the room and with the cameras rolling. So when Eric Taylor stepped forward, he applied for amnesty and he confessed to his role in the atrocities of the Craddock Four. And when he did so, there was a lot of tears shed in that room because the families were in the room. It was painful. It was powerful. Survivors like Babawa could now identify, okay, this is whom to forgive. He was the only police officer who confessed, but the least to you know, here's one of them, and he's asking for forgiveness, and he's telling the truth. This was a major part of the healing of the whole country of South Africa. The truth is so crucial for healing and justice and true forgiveness. This is why God's coming with the spirit of accountability. He's not after us to destroy us or Adam or Eve, but to set us and the world right. Now, sometimes people get stuck in the forgiveness process because they're hiding the truth or they are kept from the truth. What about us? What about you and me? Do we have a sin that's hidden? actions or attitudes that that we're working diligently to keep a secret? Do we feel tempted to hide in the trees, to to cover up our our sin with fig leaves and shift the blame to someone else? It was someone else who tempted me. It was someone else who provoked it. When you and I find ourselves tempted to hide something, it's like um, uh, a spiritual smoke detector of, of sorts where we know something is wrong, we know something is off. And we just have to see Genesis 3 that this is not a destroying God. He's after us to heal us. Um, but it's not going to go away with lies. Healing and lies don't, don't mix. What about you as a forgiving, forgiving person? Is it a struggle right now to forgive someone in your life or a group of people because the truth has not yet been named? Has the truth been hidden from you? I want you to know something. The truth might be hidden from you now, but God knows the truth. And on the day of judgment, the truth will be publicly revealed and spoken. There will be no lies, no minimizing, no gaslighting in the presence of a holy God who will not relent until the truth is told. It might be helpful for you to share um, your side of the situation with someone trusted who can bear witness to what you've been through. Is there someone in your life who can bear witness to what you've been through? That might help you heal. The truth is important in the forgiveness process. It's important to God. It's important to the human condition, to all of us. Scene three, justice. Sometimes we pit forgiveness and justice, and that is what gets us into trouble. We make people choose. Either you're merciful or you care about making the situation right. Either forgiveness or the consequences. But that is a false choice. God chooses both justice and mercy. He chooses both forgiveness and consequences. He holds them together, and by doing so, he holds the world together and holds us together. Now, justice for the serpent looks like humiliation, and this is fitting. Verse 14, the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. What's happening here? Well, okay, in his pride, the serpent set up a rival kingdom to the Lord God. He exalts himself by stealing what God gave, killing what God created, and destroying what God designed. In his craftiness, he is cursed cursed to go low when he has tried to make himself go high cursed to eat the dust when he ate, when he tempted adam and eve to eat the fruit cursed to be humiliated above all beasts the one who had set himself up is the one who will be crushed low and in a stroke of poetic justice the downfall of the serpent will come through the woman that he just took down verse 15 describes this I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, he the offspring that is, and you shall bruise his heel. What's the Lord God saying? He's saying that the serpent's fatal blow will come by way of the woman's seed. Someone from her line would crush the serpent's head like this and mash it into the ground. And to do so, he will be wounded in the process. And we know this to be a promise, a promise of Jesus Christ, Son of God, Son of Man, who would crush Satan through the humiliation of the cross. By a costly forgiveness, by the bloodshed of the living Christ, the the serpent's head would be crushed. That by the forgiveness of the Adams and Eves of this world, you and me, Jesus Christ would deal a fatal blow to Satan's head. Now, justice for the serpent was an ultimate condemnation to humiliation. He will one day, his kingdom will fall, and he will fall. Now, justice in Adam and Eve, however, is going to be mixed with mercy. They do not die immediately. Instead, Adam and Eve are given an opportunity to experience and engage with the pain and struggle that they have introduced into the world. Verse 16, the Lord says to the woman, or uh, verse 16, to the woman, God said, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. And in pain, you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you. And then Adam gets uh, some justice mixed with mercy as well, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten Of the tree which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you in pain. You shall eat of it all the days of your life. What's happening here? Justice for the couple means pain in childbearing, pain in marriage, pain in work, and finally death. They'll go back into the ground from which they came. It means banishment, we read later from the Garden of Eden, as God cleanses his first temple. Of sin. These are real consequences for real sin. And we feel them to this day, don't we? We are also engaging the pain of relationships and the pain of work. We're carrying out our calling and we have life. That is a mercy of God that we are alive, that we are breathing now, and uh, that we have a chance to worship God now and be redeemed by his blood. That is a mercy and a grace, but the pain is still there. And that pain is sometimes caused by us. If our lives matter to God, our choices matter to God. And if our choices matter to God, there are always real consequences for those choices, whether for good or for bad. We can apologize for our spiteful words, but we can never take them back. We can confess the betrayal, but we cannot make someone trust us again. For his part, Eric Taylor got to confess and receive forgiveness, and that was good for his soul, and I'm so glad that he did that. He, however, did not serve as a police officer again, and he actually was not granted amnesty by the commission. I'm still glad he confessed. Truth and justice are essential parts of the forgiving process. We see in this text, God's like a physician treating an open wound, festering and infected, He's coming in, cleansing it of all impurities, scrubbing it away, and providing a suture so that it can heal properly. The truth matters and justice matters in the forgiveness process. But thankfully, our God is also a compassionate father, slow to anger and rich in love. And so we're going to see how he shows this side of his fatherly, compassionate character to the couple. Scene four. Mercy. Verse 20. The man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made Adam for Adam and for his wife garments of skin and clothed them. The Lord God saw their vulnerability and took a step of compassion towards this couple who had betrayed him. And we can even see the Lord God stitching together Garments that perfectly match Adam and Eve's frame and selecting skins that would prepare them for the weather conditions east of Eden. You can imagine Abba Father calling them up one by one and placing these clothes on Adam and Eve and maybe taking the opportunity to remind them, I love you. You have a special calling in this life. It's going to be different now. There's a long road ahead for you, but I'm still your father. You're still my children. You still buy my image and I still love you. I'm never going to leave you. I'm never going to forsake you and never forget about that promise of your descendants. Just as the animal had to give its life so that Adam and Eve could be clothed, so Jesus Christ gave his life so that we could be clothed with the righteousness of God. There is always a sacrifice required when we show mercy to someone who has done wrong for us. It involves bearing the pain rather than inflicting the pain. That's what forgiveness in many ways is. It's bearing the pain without inflicting the pain. And that's where the future is. That's where the hope is. That's what Jesus Christ shows us with his death and with his forgiveness. Josiah was a 29-year-old physical education teacher and a varsity basketball coach who was uh, hit by a drunk driver. The accident left Josiah uh, as a paraplegic, so neither of his legs would ever walk again. The young man, this young man had been so active before the accident, and yet he spent six months in a hospital bed, simply recovering. Imagine six months in a hospital bed, looking out the window, your entire life changed forever because of the foolishness and disregard of one person who hit you. And so Josiah, as we can imagine, struggled with resentment. But he also wanted to regain the strength of his soul. He wanted a future. And so he moved towards forgiving the man who hit him. And he actually sought out to meet with the man with the intervention of um, some, some lawyers. But this man refused to meet with Josiah. So Josiah chose to spend a year developing a forgiving heart towards this man. And um, uh, the author who told this story says this, Josiah saw him, the driver, as probably feeling intense guilt because of the car crash and the injury it caused and perhaps feeling deep embarrassment. Josiah reasoned that this man's inner torment of guilt might even be worse than his own disabling injuries. Isn't that amazing? He was able to forgive this man and to gain an inner peace without distorting the incident in any way. A year and a half goes by. Finally, this man agrees to meet with Josiah. And in that meeting, Josiah learns that this man's name is Adam, believe it or not, and had recently lost his son to cancer before the accident. And uh, this man, Adam, was drowning his grief in alcohol when he hit Josiah with his car. Josiah offered him his forgiveness. And that actually helped Adam tell the truth and admit his wrong. And it ended up being a fresh start for both of these men. Josiah, for, uh, for his part, actually returned to his career as a PE teacher. He did it from a wheelchair. Um, and he started coaching the, the men's basketball team again. And his soul was free to run, even though his body was, was in a wheelchair. And I just wondered this morning, do you want to be as free as Josiah? Do you want to be as free as Babawa? Would you like to be as free as Nelson Mandela? You can be as free as they are today. Some of you need to experience God's forgiveness for yourself. That's where it starts. Maybe you've sinned like Adam and Eve. You've done something you know is wrong. And there's a part of you that's hiding from God. And that same God who pursued Adam and Eve in love is pursuing you today. And he's coming not with a spirit of accusation. He's coming with a spirit of accountability and healing. He wants to embrace you again. He wants you to be back in touch with his reality again because he knows that lies can't heal the soul. And this is possible because of Jesus. He gave his life for you, my friend. His death on the cross made it possible for you and for me to receive complete forgiveness for all wrongs done and be washed clean. So I just encourage you, don't hide from him. He's come to set your soul free. Don't you want to be free? Don't you want to walk in freedom? Now, experiencing this forgiveness from God makes it possible for us to forgive others, doesn't it? We can escape the settling scores trap of revenge and retribution. Now, depending on your story, this could be very difficult and and long and hard, and and you're going to have to have a lot of patience with yourself in this process. Please be patient with this process. Please don't give up. I invite you to keep learning about the forgiveness process this fall as we uh, look from Genesis to Revelation about about how God calls us into forgiveness and uh, how he makes that possible. Miracles can happen. I mean, not just for Mandela, but for you. Where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. So let's, you and I, follow the spirit of the Lord into the future he has for us. Would you please stand as I pray? God of compassion, you have reconciled us in Jesus Christ, who is our peace. Enable us to live as Jesus lived, breaking down walls of hostility and healing enmity. Give us grace to make peace with those from whom we are divided, that forgiving, forgiven and forgiving we may ever be one in Christ, who with you and the Holy Spirit reigns forever, one holy and undivided Trinity. Amen.